pray together. Our Father, we do give you thanks uh, for the work of Christ, uh, that he, though uh, he was strong, became weak, uh, so that through his weakness we might uh, enter into your presence and be your people. Lord, I ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, Father, we know that your word always speaks for it is living and active. And so we ask that even now as we're listening, as we're here, as we're present, uh, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear what you would say to us as your people. And we recognise, Lord, just as you live, that your word lives. And so uh, move us, Lord, by your word and to look upon Jesus uh, in all these things. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would make my words clear. Uh, Lord, the meditation of my heart acceptable in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to hold up a plaque before you saying, the end is near, the end is near, some of you would nod with, with agreement, saying, yes, the end is near, it looks like it is uh, coming. Uh, some of you uh, would shake your head going, this is one of those crazy people who stands on a street corner proclaiming that the end is near. Uh, and some of you would be interested to see what might happen next, uh, that someone is proclaiming that the end is near. And yet the Apostle Peter is telling us in verse 7 of our text today that the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. This was written a long time ago, mind you. So Peter's idea is that we are in the end times. And he begins uh, chapter 4 by telling us how to arm ourselves, how to prepare for this war, this spiritual battle that we are in in these end times. So let us look then at what is this battle for the end times that we are in, this battle for the end times. Peter begins uh, in chapter 4 by arming his, the people of God with a willingness to suffer for him. So when you ordinarily might think of a battle for the end times, you might think of Armageddon. You might be thinking uh, of prophecy. You might be thinking of trying to work out all the events in the world and what, what exact time that Jesus might be returning. You might be concerned about the one world order or you might be concerned uh, at the cultural shifts that we're experiencing right now in Australia. Uh, whatever side you lean on, you might be very concerned at the way things are heading. But Peter is telling the church that they need to arm themselves to be willing to suffer for God's sake because Jesus suffered for them. And God has given us a great example of this in nature. Uh, there is a black and yellow army which is dedicated to the cause of producing one of the sweetest substances known to man. And interestingly, this little army uses dance moves to indic indicate the location of the pollen that they collect in order to produce this sweet honey. These bees are amazing creatures and yet they are armed with a willingness to die for the sake of their great cause of producing honey. Isn't that fascinating that God made them willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for their cause? 
these beautiful little creatures. They're actually fascinating as you look at the intricate nature of these bees. And yet God has given us a picture of what he was willing to do for our sake and to give up his own life for us. And Peter tells us here in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So as Jesus is willing to suffer for us, we also ought to be willing to suffer for him. In our text, it tells us that when we are willing to suffer for the sake of God, we have ceased from sin. We see that in the second part of verse 1. It says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, one commentator put it this way, which I think is a very helpful way to understand this, because we know that Christians still sin. Right? But then what does Peter mean? He says they have ceased to sin. One commentator put it this way, that a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, when you have that, you will sever the nerve center of sin in your life. That is, when you are willing to put your own life's interests you know, behind and put God's work in front of you to honor him, to live for him, if you're willing to suffer even to live for Jesus, then you have discovered the secret to living a life where sin does not control your life when you are willing to suffer for God's sake. We see this a little bit later in our text. It tells us about what our world is like. It says uh, what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Later on, it calls it a flood of debauchery. In Peter's day, which is during sort of the height of the Roman Empire, people were hedonists. That is, they were addicted to pleasure and the pursuit of personal fulfillment through pleasure. Or put it, to put it another way, that you need to be your authentic self by satisfying yourself through any means possible. Now, when we hear these words, we think that sounds a little bit like today, and it is. Interestingly, our culture today is heading more and more into the pursuit of hedonism or pleasure. We think that is our ultimate goal. If we find pleasure in life, we will be completely satisfied. And it says here that the rest of the world will be surprised when you don't join them in this, in letting your internal desires completely rule your life. So there's this great pull to sin from the, the world around you and even within our hearts, that this battle within almost to uh, do either what we want or what God wants to go with the tide of culture or to follow God in his way. It really gives us two options here in uh, verse 2. It says, So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. It's one or the other. It's human passions, or it's the will of God. It's do what you feel like, follow the pursuit of pleasure, or do what God wants. And there is this very strong pull but the text says here that if you are at the point where you are willing to suffer in order not to sin, you have discovered the secret. If you are willing to suffer in order not to sin, if you're willing to suffer and be maligned by the culture when you don't join in, 
on their debauchery, in their pleasure-seeking, then you have discovered what it means that sin will not control your life. Peter's giving us some straight talk here. Now, I think the spirit of the age that we're in is summed up by a famous song by Frank Sinatra, and it goes like this. And now the end is here, and so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've travelled each and every highway, and more, much more. I did it. I did it my way. It's, it's actually uh, typified as the song uh, of the West, that we did it our way. We did it the way that we wanted. We fulfilled life exactly the way that we wanted to. And yet God is saying that that way is opposed to him. That's of the flesh. God's way is the will of God. The way that we are supposed to go is for the will of God. Now this presents an amazing fact about the Christian faith. That when you believe in Jesus, you have the ability to say no to your internal desires. You have the ability to say no to your internal desires and that is unique to Christians, right? Because you have another option. You can follow the will of God. If you're not a Christian person, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection and have a personal relationship with him through faith, if you don't have this, then all you have is your passions, your desires. Because if you don't obey your desires to do one thing, you're only obeying them to do something else. But there is another option on the table here for Christians, and it is the ability to say no to self and yes to God. Isn't that interesting? We're in a culture where you're told that you must be authentic to your true self. And if you're not a Christian, being authentic to your true self is obeying your natural desires. But if you are a Christian, then being authentic to your true self, as Peter is explaining here, is to no longer live for the passions of the flesh, but live for the will of God. He said, for the time, verse 3, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. As in, you used to be that person. You used to be someone who did whatever they wanted, who followed their own desires, whether that be through debauchery or through living a really good life apart from God. You used to be like that, but now to be whom God has called you to be, you are compelled to follow the will of God. Isn't it interesting that Christians are called to be their true selves, which is people who are committed to the will of God? Now, Peter's argument here is that suffering for sin makes someone an authentic Christian, a willingness even to suffer for the sake of not sinning makes you an authentic Christian. Don't go back to the old way, but rather be a person who follows wholeheartedly after Jesus. So there's this, this pull that we constantly see in our culture. We're feeling it at the moment. I think many of us feel it in our everyday lives. The more that culture seems to disagree with a biblical Christianity, we feel this pull constantly away from God 
and we have to make decisions on a daily basis. Will I follow what I want or will I follow what God wants? But there is another, there is another way to live apart. There's a third way, really. There's a way that we can uh, ignore God and not follow Him by following our own desires. There's a way to follow the will of God. And there's a way to live an upright and moral life also apart from God. A religious way. A religious way to live that really excludes Jesus as the central picture. This is what uh, we've referred to many times through this series as being religion. Religion tells you that you must live a good life and do good things in order that God would accept you. You must live a good life and do good things in order that God would accept you. And yet that is not from the Bible. That is not the Christian view. That's a religious view that's put out there by various religions that you must be a good and moral upright person then God will accept you. But Jesus offers another way. He says, I will make a way for you to have a relationship with God through my suffering, not through your obedience. Because if we're honest, even if we live a really good life or we live a life of debauchery, we cannot keep up with God's standard. And so Peter is not saying that we ought to be more moral. He's saying we need to have this crucified Jesus at the centre of our lives. And if he is at the centre of your life, you will be willing to say no to self and yes to the will of God. You know, when the great curtain came down for Christ, you know, uh, Sinatra talks about when the great curtain comes, talking about death. But when the great curtain came down, was coming down for Christ, Jesus did not sing these words, I did it my way, but he rather sang, not my will, but yours be done. So not only is Jesus the one who was willing to suffer for our sake, but he was willing even to put his own desires of self-preservation aside for the sake of God. Jesus is our great example. Now, one of the uh, battles perhaps we're having in our culture at the moment, within Christianity, right, or those who claim to comment on Christianity is uh, which bits of the Bible we will agree with and disagree with. So actually seeing this in denominations uh, around this country, uh, which are following the tide of the culture or the flow of the culture rather than following the flow of the Bible. This is happening time and time again at the moment. And we will face this issue. You will face it personally, but we will face it as churches more and more in this country as the pressure increases to conform to the current culture. And so what people are doing at the moment, and some Christian people or people who claim to be Christians, are picking and choosing which parts of the Bible they will agree with and which parts of the Bible they will dismiss. The problem with this, and it's been put this way, is that if you want, if, if you find that the Bible agrees with the, your way of life entirely, then you're not really reading it. But if you find that the Bible differs from your life, it calls you to something greater, you've actually met the God within it. If the Bible just agrees with everything that you do, 
and every way that you live, you're not really reading it. Or if you want it to, you're just making, trying to make God in your own image. But the Bible calls us to a higher way, a way which is of God. And if he is truly other, if God is who he says he is, then he calls people to follow him, not us to call him to follow us. So in this battle for the end times, we must be firstly armed with a willingness to suffer for God. We must also, secondly, be fortified in the flood of debauchery. That is a fascinating uh, phrase, isn't it? The flood of debauchery. We know a little bit about floods at the moment because our Murray River is flooding its way through South Australia at the moment. And what you'll find in uh, the videos, and some of you might have seen this personally, is that some houses sort of have the floodwaters come up to them and they're just swept away. And some stand firm against the flow of the flood. And it all depends on the foundation, doesn't it? If one has a strong foundation, a, a strong house has a strong foundation, that it might stand up even if it is inundated from floodwaters and survive. Whereas if a house has a weak foundation, it will be overcome and float down and be destroyed by the river itself. And it's very much the same way in our culture. There is a flood of debauchery, which I think is well uh, explained today by living for pleasure's sake. Right? There, our culture is telling you live for pleasure's sake alone. But God is saying that is not the way to life. That is not the way to the will of God and you will be consumed by it if you enter into it. In fact, Peter goes further to say, this is what culture is like. You know, these are the things that are going on in culture and the culture will be surprised, the world around you will be surprised when you don't join in on them. I'll be surprised when you don't join in on them, but you should be not surprised. Of course, our, the culture, the majority culture around us is going to want us to do as they do. That's what makes us feel settled and secure as, as humans, doesn't it? When everyone's doing the same thing, it makes us feel settled and secure as humans when we all agree on the same things. And so there is this great pull to follow the flow of our culture around us and your workmates, your friends, your family will be surprised when you don't just join in on everything that everyone else is doing. So if you didn't vote yes in the plebiscite uh, several years ago endorsing same-sex marriage, people will be surprised that you didn't do that, even if you're saying, I hold to orthodox Christian values. People will be surprised when you don't sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you get married or try before you buy, as they say. Or probably more so common these days is even live together before you get married. People are surprised when you don't. My wife and I had friends who were very surprised that we chose not to live together before we got married. They thought it was a recipe for disaster. Except, actually, today we celebrate 11 years of being married, so we're getting there, praise God. Thank you. Um, but isn't it interesting? And you, you will be, people will be surprised when you don't, you feel that because of conscience, you can't 
wear a rainbow on your sporting uniform or uh, you know, have put your particular pronouns on your email signature, whatever it is in your workplace, people around you will be surprised that you don't do it. But you shouldn't be surprised. Christian, don't be put off by this because this is normal. Peter said this was happening 2,000 years ago. We better get used to it and actually be fortified to handle it. And Peter actually gives us a bit more truth-telling. He says, you will be maligned because of it. That is, you'll be slandered. You'll be spoken ill of. People will say, you have done the wrong thing. We saw this uh, very recently in an example from a, uh, the, well, who was supposed to be the Essendon CEO, Andrew Thornburn. Right? And he didn't get the job because he was the chair of a church that taught the Bible. Traditional Orthodox Christianity was not agreeable with him being the CEO of a major sporting club in this country. And you know what? We should not be surprised. Why? Because it tells us here, this is what's going to happen. And Christians need to be willing to not take the top job sometimes because you will be forced to compromise. We can certainly be, take the second position, maybe uh, not be the CEO, but maybe be the CFO or the COO or the manager, or a coach, or something lesser than the top job because we don't go with the flow of culture. And you know what? That's okay. God's not in, in it for you to fulfill your career ambitions. He's in it for you to do His will. So yes, we will be maligned. We will face increasing pressure to join in on the culture around us. And yet God wants us to be fortified to say no. How do we do that? Well, what you'll find at the moment in uh, South Australia is all the towns that uh, are on the riverbank of the Murray River, as the flood is coming towards them, the flood water is coming towards them, they're putting up levees, which are barriers made up generally of dirt, which control the waters so that they don't flood their houses. They put a levee on either side of the bank so that the water goes through but doesn't flood their homes. And so we need levees in order to protect us from this flood of debauchery. And what are the levees? What are the levees that Peter encourages the church with? Well, the first is this, uh, and we see it in verse 5. It is that people are ultimately accountable to God. He says in verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. People are ultimately accountable to God. What will fortify you when you feel intense pressure to conform and yet keep your job? Say no, but say, I will humbly serve in my workplace. Say, no, I can't join in on that, but I will do my best still to stay and to honour and to serve. Christians aren't called to leave the secular world, but to join it. How else will we be God's witnesses? How else will we be salt and light in this world around us? And the way that we do this, this first levy that is put up that, to protect us, to give us strength and to fortify us, is to realise that people in this world, particularly those that malign Christians, are ultimately accountable to God. So don't get revenge, Christians. Don't 
feel like you have to take it personally when people are at you because of your faith because they will be held accountable to God. You don't need revenge, but you entrust yourself to him who judges justly. And Peter says this because the government in his day was not set up to support Christians. And I tell you, the government today is not going to be, is currently not set up just to support Christians. And in the future, Christians will not be protected in many ways that we have been now. That's the way it's looking. And you know what? That's okay because God is not thwarted by human government. You know, we, we can still get involved in politics. We can still uh, lobby the government in democracy. We can still you know, vote for who we would like to, but we should not expect that government will defend all of our rights when we are maligned because in actual fact, they probably won't. And that's okay. Why? Because God will bring people to account. So we entrust ourselves to a higher judgment. You know, so this doesn't mean that, you know, if, if uh, you find that there's an LGBTQI rainbow day at work and you feel like you can't participate in it because you're a Christian and everyone maligns you, don't go to your boss and say, hey, this isn't fair. It's okay to say, hey, this isn't fair. But when your boss goes, well, too bad, you don't need to be consumed by that. You entrust yourselves to God who will judge justly on the last day. You don't need to be consumed by anger because they're not doing it, in a sense, against you personally. Jesus will take it personally for you. So don't be fretful about what's coming. And some of this is theoretical, right? We're not all being maligned all the time, but it feels like it's increasing. And even we fret about the possibility of it happening. And I'm saying to you, fortify your mind by realising that people are ultimately accountable to God. The second levy, so I've got one levy. The second levy to fortify us in this culture, this flood of debauchery, is that God raises the dead. We see this in verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Peter now gives an example. He said, you know those people who have died who are Christians? You know them? You know, your, your mothers and fathers, your brothers and sisters, your friends, your, your fellow church members who've died and they are Christians, they're with Jesus now. Because though they've been judged in the flesh the way people are, everybody dies, the mortality rate is 100%, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Again, Christians have something unique, is that they know that they're going to be with God, they know that they will see him. So don't fear being maligned. I said don't fret about it. Now I say don't fear it. Why, Christian? Because you will see God. And that needs to be enough. In a world that doesn't care about resurrection, in a world that doesn't care about uh, you know, what's right, or the Christian standards of morality, 
You need to be fortified that you will see God through faith in the resurrected Jesus. That you will be judged in the flesh in the way that people are, as in your body will die. But that you might live in the spirit the way that God does and you will see him. And that needs to be enough. This will fortify you against the great pull and the flood of our culture and time. Don't be fretful. Don't be fearful. Love and serve is the way as God has told us to. Now there is another great flood coming, not of debauchery, and it's not even a physical flood, but a spiritual one. It's a flood of judgment. God is saying that there will be a day when he judges the whole world. The whole world will be consumed by the judgment of God. God will judge the living and the dead. It will come. The flood in Genesis was, God said he will never do that again. He will never physically flood the earth in the same way, but he will bring a final judgment to the earth. And yet we have a saviour, Jesus Christ, who was willing to stand in our place, in our judgment, in our place of judgment, and receive the full consequence of sin. If you have believed in Jesus, Christian, you are someone who was, who Jesus was judged in the flesh and in the spirit for you. Jesus took the full penalty of sin, both physically by dying on a cross and spiritually by taking the wrath of God upon himself. That's what the Bible tells us. That Jesus was forsaken by God the Father in your place so that you may not be forsaken by God the Father. So that when you die, God would welcome you into his presence rather than reject you. We have a God that was willing to go to that length for us. When the flood of judgment came for us, he stood to receive it in our place. And so this is what the church ought to be. The church ought to be fortified to be a refuge from the flood for people. Just like Noah's ark was to be a refuge for people from the coming flood, the church is to be a refuge for the world from the flood. A city on a hill, a place of refuge. You know the flood of debauchery consumes and destroys people? When you give yourself to the pursuit of pleasure, it empties your soul. There are people all around us who have been victimised by a culture in pursuit of pleasure. It's all around us. And the church is a way out. When people are fed up by it, when people are confused and harassed and helpless, we proclaim the resurrection of the dead through faith in Jesus Christ. And people are freed. People find refuge. People find refuge from the culture, but the eternal judgment too. That is the role of the church today, to be a place of refuge for the world. We should not allow others around us to see, for us to see them and not call out as they're drowning that there is a way out. It would be as if we had the lifeboats but we did not send them.
to them. It would be as if someone was raising a hand out of the waters and we did not place our hand out. How do we do that? How do we be a people of refuge? We need to stand firm, distinct as God's people, not following human passions, because that's just like everyone else, but following the will of God, but be verbal about it. And the only way that you can be verbal about it is if you are not fretful and not fearful. In Peter's day, they were in the reign of Nero. Nero, some of us know, was the Roman emperor who was famous for making torchlights out of Christians on the way up to his summer palace. He would literally douse them in oil and light them on fire. He blamed Christians for uh, burning down Rome and used that as a purpose to go and persecute them. And yet what does Peter say? Peter says, we are to be a people who are utterly committed not to seek revenge, but to entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly, to realise that what we have has eternal value. And so we do not fear, we do not fret, but we continue on. So we've seen this battle for the end times. We must be armed with a willingness to suffer for God. We've seen that we need to be fortified in this flood of debauchery. We need to have levies on both sides of us, knowing that God will judge justly, knowing that if we are in him, we will see Christ on the other side. And finally, we must be prepared to be an end times church. This is where we come to verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. You might think of an end times church as we're constantly looking at sort of big maps of prophecy about when exactly the end times will come. Now, it's fine for you to do that, but that's not what Peter is saying. What is Peter saying about being an end times church? He's not saying that we need to you know, all put our money together and build a big bunker underneath the car park there and store up cans of food uh, in preparation for doomsday and weapons and whatever else that we might need. He's not saying that. What is he saying? Not a bunker, but a prayer closet. Pray. He's saying, don't buy into the current culture of cancelling one another and shutting people down and not listening to them, but rather love one another earnestly. He's saying, don't be isolationist, but show hospitality. He's saying, don't be a lone ranger, but serve one another. Being an end times church means keeping Jesus first and so doing what Christians do best, which is being the church. So how do we do that? Verse 7 tells us we do that through prayer, not through fretfulness. What does he say? He says, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Being self-controlled and sober-minded is looking at things the way that God sees them. Not giving yourself over to your passions, but living for the will of God. That's self-control. Sober-minded is looking at things clearly in our world. Not just from the horizontal aspect, but from the vertical. Looking up to God. And if we do those, we will pray. We will seek after Him. 
We will pray because we see that without God working in our lives, we only have ourselves. That's a scary place. We pray God's will, not our own, because we realise that God has the right path for us. We don't even pray fretfully. That is saying things over and over again like a mantra, like the Gentiles do. That's what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't pray like that. We entrust ourselves to God. In fact, the way we ought to pray, Jesus tells us, the way we can become self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers, that we would actually be a praying people, is to pray like this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you want to be the church, so say this to us corporately, if we want to be the church, we need to be a prayerful church because without God we cannot do this because we've just got ourselves if we're not praying. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask God to come into our lives, to come into our circumstances, to come into our difficulties and work through us for his sake. So we pray as an end times church. We also have relationships that are shaped by love, not cancelling one another. Look at this in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You don't listen to someone because you don't love them. Or you're not acting in love at the time. The idea of cancelling or shutting people down or saying that their opinion or their voice doesn't matter anymore is a way of the world. It doesn't involve any forgiveness. It doesn't involve love covering a multitude of sins. It writes people off. But Christians, we don't do that. Because we believe that love covers a multitude of sins. So we as Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That is, we are proactive about loving one another. We take steps of action towards caring for another. That is, when someone else is in a crisis, you get on the phone and you call them. When people are going through difficulty, in whatever respect, we get around and support them in material and spiritual ways. We pray for one another. We make a list of people that we know, perhaps in our gospel community or in the broader church, and we pray for them personally and by name. Why? Because we love them. And this is where the rubber hits the road. When we hurt one another, right? when someone hurts us or we hurt them, we ask for forgiveness and we grant forgiveness. That's the secret to the church because every human relationship will have conflict, but how you handle conflict will determine its longevity. And so to do this, we must pray the way Jesus told us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We pray the way that Jesus taught us to, getting in line that if we understand God's forgiveness, we will be able to forgive others out of that deep well of forgiveness that we have received. 
to this end time church is characterized by prayer. It's characterized by love-shaped relationships. It is also characterized by hospitality, not isolationism. Not isolationism. What does it say, verse 9? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's a great temptation at the moment to keep to yourself. Don't go out. Don't associate with people as much as you used to. Keep your life to yourself. Be more individualistic. Fill up your time with entertainment rather than with people. And yet, Peter says to show hospitality. But he adds this interesting part at the end. He says, without grumbling. How do you do that? Because you can be told to do something and you can do it because you've been told to do it. You can do it because you feel the obligation of doing it. But he says do it without grumbling. How do we have a generous heart where we show hospitality to one another? That is, share our lives, we open our hearts and we open our homes to one another. How do we do that? Again, we come to the prayer of Jesus which says, give us today our daily bread. We recognise that everything we have comes from God. All of our daily needs. And so we give him thanks. And out of thanksgiving, God breeds generosity. And out of generosity, God breeds hospitality. Because we realise that all that we have is just from him. And so we are free to share it. So we are to be, as an end times church, a prayerful church. A church with relationships shaped by love. We're to be a church that practices hospitality without grumbling. And lastly, we're to be a church that uses its gifts to serve one another. We see this in verse 10. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. So what are we to focus on in the end times? Building one another up with our God-given gifts. You know, there's a temptation today to be a church that is full of lone rangers, people who don't get involved in the activity of the local church but withhold themselves because they've got a bit of a lone ranger mentality. I can do it on my own. They're singing Sinatra's my way while still claiming to be part of God's way. And Peter is saying that doesn't cut it. That's not the church. The church is where... We use our gifts to serve one another as stewards of God's very grace. And he gives us examples. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Notice that it's about God. It's about speaking because you believe you're speaking on behalf of God. It's about serving with the strength that God supplies. It's all about Him. What is God's plan for the end times? It's for the church to be the church proclaiming Jesus Christ with its mouth and with its hands. And so how do we do this? How do we do this? We see here in our text, it says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's the end game of all this? The glory of God. What's the, what's the purpose of all this? That God will be glorified in all things. 
that your sights would not be set on your own passions and pleasures like everyone else. No, we're different because we have a crucified and risen Saviour and so we live for Him. And so we pray the Lord's Prayer to conform us, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the way that we become the church of God's people. In the 1500s, Martin Luther, one of the first reformers in the church, wrote a song called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. These are some words from it. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Who, ask you, may that be? Jesus Christ, it is he. What holds the church together? What is our strength? It is Christ. He is our mighty fortress. And so we must choose that we either have him or we have the shaky sand as our foundation of the world. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Thanks for that, Lawson.